And so we're going to start with uh, Hebrews 11. I'm going to read 11.32 to 12.3, the passage that's in your zine. But as many as you will know, we're, we're just coming in towards the end of chapter 11 in Hebrews. And what the writer of the Hebrews has done in the verses before this is to talk about a lot of faith heroes, starting with Abel, going through Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Moses, uh, Moses uh, and a few others. And that's the point that we get to when he says, And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had, been, had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, as Justin said, we're going to read James 5, 1 to 13. The earlier part of that we looked at last week, uh, but it'll help put in context what Justin will talk to us about. So James 5, 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you fail to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who wasn't opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. 
See how the farmer waits for the field to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers or sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, David. Let's pray. Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross, he scorned its shame, and yet he now knows the power of resurrection. He is seated at your right hand, and in Christ we have been lifted. Cause within us then a deep patience and a profound endurance. We pray this only in the power of your spirit. Amen. So our text today is simple, but the context is difficult. Our text today is James 5, verse 7. James 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Simple, isn't it? But the context of verse 7 is suffering. Last week we looked at James 5, 1 to 6. Uh, we made the point that uh, James is employing a prophetic lament mode. Uh, he's pronouncing a woe on, on the rich landowners who are defrauding the workers, reducing the brothers and sisters in the church in Jerusalem to poverty. They're being oppressed by the bullies and life was hard, not fun. Then in verse 7, James speaks to the brothers and sisters and he says, what then, if this be true, what then? And the answer is, be patient. Then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. So there's a thing to do, so simple, I love it. There's a thing to do, be patient, and a reason to do it, which is that the end is in sight. So keep your eyes fixed forward. And that'll give you the resources to be patient in the suffering. So Christian communities are very interesting, don't you think? <laughs> Uh, for a bunch of reasons, but in theory, well, we, we, we chart a path through suffering with our eyes on a future that God has promised. That's pretty profound, don't you think? So we chart a path through suffering with a narrative. I'm not sure if there are any other communities that do that. We chart a path through suffering with a narrative, a gospel, a story to tell. And we do it with, hopefully, support. We, Christians, don't just say, look, 
we're in a pickle. It's really hard. How can I end it now? The pickle. How can I stop it now? How can I fix it now? How can I make it go away? We don't do that, although there are some things you can do at various points during suffering, of course. We also don't say to each other, well, build a bridge and get over it. You know, suck it up, princess. You know, you, you shouldn't, shouldn't be so upset by this. We don't do that either. Rather, we chart a path through suffering, saying, you know, with things that you can't uh, sort of mitigate against now, we say, ultimately, all of this suffering will end in God's timing. In the meantime, we develop the art of patience, of waiting, of living in hope of the one who will come to judge and to restore. Jesus called that moment the renewal of all things. He said, at the renewal of all things. And so we have a story to tell, a beginning, a middle, and end, a narrative to live by, a gospel of a God who made the world, who loves the world, who knows the world is in turmoil and pain. He knows your suffering. The Christian message is that he has felt your suffering. He knows your suffering. The Christian God has experienced, you see how profound this is, experienced our pain in the person of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, he has been tested in every way as you have been. And so we say, Christ has died and yet Christ has risen and Christ will come again. Be patient then until the Lord's coming. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So it's not all about here and now. Our hope then is in God and it's not in parliaments and it's not in wealth. It's not in quick or cheap answers. We wait. I noticed Jeffrey Epstein chose to end his pain quickly last night. Christians say there's a better way. And we do so here, verse 7, as brothers and sisters in community, in support of each other. We together live in a fallen world who hasn't felt that over time. Maybe you feel it keenly at the moment. Maybe you feel it especially this week with the uh, abortion bill before the New South Wales Parliament, which of course, as you and I know, is a sea of tears and blood Novelist Walker Percy wrote a mock self-help novel called Lost in the Cosmos. In it he writes, and by the way, if you're a counsellor or a psychologist, don't bust my chops, I'm just quoting somebody else. In it, uh, Walker Percy says, he, he says that he does not think that depression is merely a problem to be medicated away, but rather a rational response in some ways to the state of our world. Now, there's some bold honesty there and some truth in that. This is the world we live in, and no other, and there's plenty to be sad about. Suffering is inevitable for all. Oppression is regular for most throughout history and in the world today. I'll never forget holding you know, our kids in their arms on day one with not a scratch on them, looking down and thinking, suffering is inevitable for this little girl, inevitable. Cheery man I am at the, at the birth of my children. <laughs> 
But still, you know, it's just true, right? Theologian and pastor Christopher Ash says that we can face the problem of suffering in our world asking either, on one hand, armchair questions or, he says, wheelchair questions. We can ask about the question of suffering from the armchair, remote from the pain, academic and philosophical discussions, or we can ask from the wheelchair, which is as a person struggling to find meaning in suffering, feeling suffocated by the darkness, gasping for air, the air of hope, <laughs> uh, scrambling for relief, trying to end the pain quickly. Asking from the wheelchair is asking questions with tears in your eyes, with a limp or with a, a deep scar. Tonight's message is not about why suffering exists, that's a worthy question, but rather what to do about it. How can you bear up under it? And how does the Christian narrative and Christian community get us through it, through the suffering? Leo Tolstoy wrote, um, he said this, he said, if you are not happy with your life, you can change it in two ways. Either improve the conditions in which you live, possible sometimes, not possible other times, or you can improve your inner spiritual state. The first is not always possible. But the second is, what I want to do is talk about the second way. Because by the way, as Westerners in a functioning democracy, we really do suffer, and you know that deeply, but um, there's lots of sort of things and places you can appeal to in our particular society. Very, very thankful that that's the case. But it betrays, it could betray very quickly a faux truth that all problems can be solved if you just put your mind to it and go to the right people. No matter what happens, no matter where you live, no matter which part of history you live in, I think Tolstoy is right, tending to your inner spiritual state is first step. How can you be joyful even in the sadness? Two thoughts tonight. Firstly, how to stay on course. This is on page 11. And secondly, how not to get bumped off course. How to stay on course, which is um, really about the end of the path and keeping your eyes on the future. And I want to conclude by talking about how not to get bumped off the course because there's plenty of ways in which you can be bumped off the path in a life of suffering. So firstly, how to stay on course. James says if you want to wait well, if you want to make it to the end, if you want to learn patience, then he's basically saying get your eyes off. The suffering itself, not easy to do, but get your eyes, if you can, off the suffering itself and onto, well, eventually the New Testament is going to say onto Jesus Christ. But James says, get your eyes onto three people, three different types of people. And if you're on page 11, you can uh, fill in the blanks there. I thought I'd give you some blanks because some of you like to fill in blanks. How to stay on course? He says, number one, if you're waiting, spend time with a, with a farmer. Here's a turn up. Spend time with a farmer. Secondly, spend time in a prophet, and thirdly, spend time in the book of Job. Let me show you that from the text. Firstly, spend time with the farmer. This, of course, will manage, I think, your timing expectations. Look at verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. That's what a farmer does, first century. Waits 
for the land to yield its valuable crop, waiting patiently for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Notice he tells you what to do. He says, look at the farmer. See the farmer. Which I think means, you know, go and look. Go and find the farmer and talk to them. Witness it if you have the opportunity. Take a Saturday or a weekend and go and, and find a farmer that you know and sip with them and hear their stories or read their stories. And when you do so, says James, do it intentionally, thinking about what patience actually looks like when you can't control the reins. I wonder whether a text like this is even more powerful in our current situation with the drought. Name that if you listen to a farmer now, I think you're going to hear a lot of despair, even in the hope. Bush Church Aid Society could help you to do that, and their offices are right here on York Street, ironically. The new national director of the Bush Church Aid Society is being commissioned right here in this building tomorrow night. If you want to come and join me, I'm going to, the Archbishop will be here. I'll be here. I'm going to go and find a farmer, because there'll be a few of them there tomorrow night. And what would you learn if you spoke to a farmer? And I take it you'd learn different things from each one. They'd say different things. There'd be a range of experiences. But I think they would say something along the lines of, you don't control the reins. They don't come at my command. They come, I mean a Christian one, they come when God decides. But here in, in, uh, in James, they're expecting to come, the Autumn rains come in autumn, the spring rains come in spring. You can't hurry it. You can't make the rain come, and so you have to wait for it. James says in the same way, you can't end all suffering. There might be some things that you can do, but ultimately you wait for the autumn and spring rains, which really is you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So be patient. You learn that from a farmer, one step in front of the other. Keep breathing. The autumn and spring rains will come. The Lord's coming is near. That's what James says. We'll talk about nearness in just a moment. So, first, spend time with a farmer. Secondly, spend time in a prophet. Verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets. Not just the farmers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Farmers help you with the timing question, but the prophets help you with the righteousness question. Stay in the course, obeying God, even if everybody opposes you. It's a long read, but take some time to read the book of Jeremiah sometimes. I studied it at the Church Missionary Society summer school in January, and boy, what a tough read. What an awful life. What a bold, honest life. But he's an example of staying in the course doing what God wants, saying what God wants him to say, despite the opposition, waiting for God's timing, despite the derision of others. Or if you want something a little bit easier, try Daniel, the book of Daniel, same thing. Removed from sort of the safety of Jerusalem, the sandstone walls, sent out to live in the big bad world in Babylon, and he has to sort of work out what it means to be patient and wait. Just so you know, September the 22nd, is a Sunday, and on that Sunday we begin a new series here at church leading up to Advent on the book of Daniel. We're going to talk about staying the course on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. So be encouraged, be strengthened as you look at the prophets. Somebody said to me this morning, so the application is 
go read more of the Bible. I'm like, bang on. And verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. They made it. They didn't just cave in. Now, this point celebrates examples from the Old Testament. And that was the point of the first reading uh, that David read to us a moment ago, where the writer of Hebrews says, you know, what more shall I say? You know, I've got room, really, to talk about all these great people. I've got room to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who, by golly, go read it. They, um, through faith, conquered kingdoms. They administered justice and they gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions. There's Daniel. Right? All sorts of amazing things in these stories to take note of. But others were tortured. You should know that refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. They had their eyes forward on the prize. Some faced jeers. Some of you faced jeers. Some faced flogging. I've never faced flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. The writer says they were put to death by stoning, they were sawn in two, and they were killed by the sword. These were all commended, says the writer, for their faith, for their trust in God. Yet, hear this, yet not one of them received what had been promised. So you say, gee, I've been asking about this thing for, for years now. Each one of them, says the writer, they all died without receiving the fullness of the promise that was, was, was given to them. It was all leaning forward to Jesus in the end. But the writer says God had planned something better for all of us so that only together with uh, those Old Testament prophets, they will be made perfect, since we are therefore surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run the race before us. He says on City of the Surf Day. And I know the City of the Surf, I've done it maybe 10 times, and it's like, I don't want to be here, <laughs> that hill is large, but I know there's only you know, six kilometers to go, five kilometers to go, four kilometers to go. And the aim, of course, is not to be tripped over by the 50,000 people who are all around you. By the way, we know uh, this in theory, when the suffering comes, it really hurts. And I love the Lewis quote there, we were promised sufferings, they were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it, said Lewis. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. I knew it was coming. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself and not to others. And in reality, not in my imagination. It's not easy. James says it. But God uses these things to grow our faith, our dependence on him. They're necessary, but uncomfortable and confusing and mysterious. Things that God uses to grow us into maturity. Spend time with the farmer, you'll learn about timing. Spend time with the prophet, you'll learn about righteousness. But spend time, thirdly, in the book of Job. Go read it if you can. The farmer handles your timing question, the prophet's your righteousness question. But spending time in Job handles the, what's called the theodicy question. Namely, it handles the question of how a good God could allow such muck and suffering. Because Job experienced the muck Tenfold, a hundredfold. It never stopped coming his way. What do you do if you think it's unfair? Well, James says, go read it, verse 
verse 11. You've heard of Job's perseverance and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. That's all he says. Just a little signal to you, a little shout out. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Job was the ultimate, if I can put it this way, wheelchair sufferer, lost everything, possessions, family, health. His friends, rather than bringing comfort, heaped on him woes from their armchairs, their theological armchairs. But from the wheelchair, he wrestled. Why? Now, his story is long, and I believe intentionally so. It's not a cute postcard. It's not a pithy tweet. It's not a meme. In fact, I'm becoming increasingly aware that our society, having moved away from the deep narratives of ancient scripture, we're now relying basically on pithy quotes that are retweeted and put up on Facebook. You know, life isn't the moment, the breath of the moments, but the moments that take your breath away. I mean, what is that? Is that really something to live by? Job, opposite. It's a staggeringly honest book, and an old one too, thousands of years old, potentially the first scripture written. And it voices what we might actually think and say when not in public. It voices what we say in our whispers and in our tears. But through the tears and the pain, we see, we've heard of Job's perseverance. Though he complained bitterly, by the way, he came right up close to the edge, understandably. He gives us then an example of lament. His wife said, curse God and die. In other words, fix this up now, make it go away. But he never cursed God and died. In fact, he kept coming up against the face of God, wrestling with God. James is, gives us, as I said, a shout out at this point. But I think we need to see it as an invitation to wrestle with Job more fully. Would you like to do that next year? Is that something you'd like to do? Okay. Three of you do. James says, see what the Lord finally brought about. Are the suffering... It ended for him in Job. His wealth was restored. Now, we know that's not true. That's not true for everybody in this life, although Jesus says in the life of the world to come, absolutely. But the point was that Job persevered. God restored his life. He had compassion and mercy on him. So we need to stay the course. Uh, ultimately, in the end, our job is not to uh, keep our eyes on a farmer or in a prophet or in Job, Neither the farmer nor the prophet or Job are the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We read Job, we look at the prophets, we can speak to a farmer, but all of this in the end anticipates the sufferings of Christ and his resurrection. Job himself anticipates the perfect obedience of Jesus. He doesn't curse God and die when he's on the cross. And as we consider the farmer, the prophets and the Job, ultimately we consider Jesus Christ, God himself. His suffering, his perfect obedience secured our right standing with God. We can be free in, in his grace. I love, I'm going to quote him in a moment. Horatio Spafford lost five daughters in the Atlantic Ocean. He wrote the hymn, It is well, it is well with my soul. But in the middle of that hymn, he deals with sin, not just the suffering. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus did all that so you can live in, in grace. 
But his suffering, his death and resurrection means that we can also trust him in the suffering. He's faithful to his promise so that as the farmer waits patiently for the autumn and spring rains, so we too can wait for Jesus to come. It is near. Now just a word about nearness. What does James mean by near? Because you can say this was written 2,000 years ago, so he's not near. We understand nearness in terms of immediacy. Um, you know, it's going to happen tomorrow. But nearness in Scripture doesn't necessarily mean immediacy. Rather, it often means that little now stands in the way before its completion. Nothing much, there's no much more to happen. The Lord is near. So, eyes on the price. Eyes on Jesus in the end, spending time with the farmer, prophet, and Job. How then to get bumped off the course? How many did the city deserve? Can I have a hand up? Oh, bless you guys. How hard was it ducking and weaving around 50,000 people? It's quite hard not to trip over, basically. A great uh, illustration of the Christian life. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us and not get bumped off the course. And I take it, well, James, there's lots of ways to be bumped off the course. Disappointment, um, deep loss, uh, all of that can, can hurt. But James says that there's three things that could bump you off the course here. And so he says three things. He says, check your relationships, check your integrity, and check your joy. I'll tell you why in a moment. First, he says, check your relationships. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. I take it when faced with difficulty, when facing a particular injustice, or when we begin to think that our experiences are unique, that no one is suffering quite like I am, then it's easy, very easy, to turn against each other, to rise and strike, because you're hurting. It's understandable. Perhaps the first thing to go is healthy relationships. We go feral. We can take our frustrations out on others, vent our discontentment, but James says, you know, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. The judge, he says, is standing at the door, which is not a way of saying um, you're about to cop it. It's not about a fear of threat. Our standing before God is secure. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was now to the cross. I bear it no more. It is, well with, it is well with my soul. But rather what James is doing here is saying, Christ is here. He will judge would we be ashamed of the way we treat others? Gosh, I know sometimes. I feel that way. If Christ is at the door, ready to judge, if he walked in and saw the way I treated my, the ones I love. It's crazy, I know. So the response for James is um, to repent of the grumbling. I think in the end to bring your hardships to God rather than taking it out on each other. It's part of the value of prayer. Or perhaps it's a commitment to being vulnerable. Right? Instead of putting the walls up, which makes me prickly, in the midst of my struggle, I call on others to pray for me. We can do that right here tonight, by the way, during the final two songs. People will be willing to pray with you. Just get up out of your seat and head over to where the tea is. Secondly, check your integrity, verse 12. 
Second thing to go if you're suffering sometimes is your integrity. You suffer and so you cut corners. Perhaps most clearly seen with a person who's suffering with um, money issues, often is, well not always, but is sometimes tempted to gamble. It's a pretty, pretty simple connection to make. So James addresses a problem in the church that his own brother addresses. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 5. James is quoting him as he does almost all the way through his letter. Namely, people who swear on certain things so that if they don't do it, because they swear on this thing and not that thing, they don't really have to do it anymore. It's literally like crossing your fingers. I'm going to go and do it, but say, I'm sorry, I crossed my fingers behind my back. And James says, no, no, no. Above all, keep your integrity. Above all, don't play games. Above all, don't swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes, and you'll do it, or a no, and you won't do it. It's a real challenge. I think James is saying, don't envy the rich. Don't stop your generosity because of suffering. Don't cut corners. Don't start to gamble and lie about it. Take personal responsibility and keep your integrity in check. So your relationships, challenged. Integrity, cut corners. And thirdly, he says, check your, check your joy. I'm going to talk more about this next week. In verse 13, the beginning of the next section, James writes, is any among you in trouble? Let them pray here tonight. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Let them sing songs of praise. Losing your joy is the worst. And suffering can do that to people. Emily Dickinson said, suffering is a kind of blank. Your horizon can be filled with the darkness with little room left for the dawn. But Jesus is our dawn, his resurrection, our peace. It's why Horatio Spafford can lose Five daughters in a boating accident in the Atlantic Ocean, and yet he can write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, you taught me to say, oh God, you taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's often said we need to remember in the darkness what we learnt in the light. Well, maybe it should be we need to sing in the darkness what we sang in the light. Now, I'm not suffering terribly right now. I find life hard like you do and challenging. But I sing these songs and I often think to myself, um, what relevance has this got to be right now? And I'm pretty sure I'm singing them for now, but I also, I'm sure I'm singing them for Jesus Christ and to worship. I'm also sure that I'm singing these songs for a day to come. Dr. Timothy Keller says, you can't get at the joy until you get out the joy. You need to sing with your lips, even with enthusiasm as opposed to ability. That's me. John Bunyan said, God's people are like bells. The harder they are hit, the better they sound. Or Eugene Peterson, my favorite, everyone is in a hurry. Everyone wants shortcuts. They want help to fill out the form that will give them instant credit. They are impatient for results. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. There's a little market 
So there's a great market for religious experience in our world, but there's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what the earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Growth or discipleship is more like cooking with a crock pot instead of a microwave. Bing! It can be slow, long and difficult, but it's always the best way, perhaps the most excellent way. So here in James, there's a thing to do, be patient, and a reason to do it. The end is in sight. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus and we consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not, what? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let me pray. Father, suffering is, uh, is inevitable, and uh, some of us are experiencing it now in profound ways, and some of us have experienced it uh, in profound ways in the past, but all of us will in the future. And so I pray that you'll give us what we need, um, a long apprenticeship in the one direction to run the race marked out for us, to not be bumped off the course, but to stay the course. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Give us community, brothers and sisters, to pray with even now, tonight. Chart a path through it. We can't end it all quickly, and we don't want to end it all quickly. We want what comes through the path of suffering. We pray this, all of this, Father, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.